Hi, everyone. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, I'm speaking with David Haberman, Professor Emeritus at Indiana University in Religious Studies. David has done much of his work on the culture of Braj and in Varanasi. We're discussing two of his books, both published by Oxford University Press, People Trees, and Loving Stones, which document how Hindu worship embraces nature in a deeply personalized way. It's a fascinating and timely topic, so let's get into it. Hinduism in the environment is often talked about in big terms. This is something we're both familiar with. We've been to many conferences, and I feel like I've heard, with due respect to all my fellow commentators, the same presentation several times. But I think what your work does in particular is shine a light and document the reverence, the relationship that exists in Hindu communities for what most people in the West regard as inanimate objects. In two books, you know, you talk about reverence for trees, for stones, and for mountains. So that's what I'd really like to go into today, into today because there's, there are many, there's a through line in this. You start off People Trees, which is your book, it's almost a decade old now, with this question. And I think it also applies to your more recent work, Loving Stones. You say, what is, or I should say, you ask, what is a tree? Or perhaps we should ask, who is a tree? The difference between the two questions is significant and culturally determined. The notion that a tree is a sentient, animate being with, one, with whom one can have a meaningful relationship is quite alien to most people in the West. So with that in mind, what then is the Hindu view of trees and stones and mountains and that relationship? What, how is that so different? And how does this fit in with the Hindu relationship to the na- nature and the environment more broadly? Yeah, and you're, are you asking how is it different from more Western conceptions where the tree is an object, or how? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not the difference between those. We can get into how that plays out, but you present it in the book as a concept that's totally alien, and most our listeners are all around the world. So, what is what what is this Hindu conception? And then, if you could contrast it with. For, for people that, you know, it may not be obvious to them. How, how is this so different and how does this play out? Yeah, well, um, I think that that's a great question. Um, the, uh, the differences are great in, in some sense in that the, I write primarily for an American audience and the idea that a tree is a sentient being with whom you can have a significant, mutually beneficial relationship, is there on the periphery of American society, but it's not a dominant idea by any means within uh, the United States. And I was interested in studying stones because the idea then that a stone or a sacred mountain is a sentient being with whom one can have a significant relationship is really alien to the great, great majority uh, of of, um, those particularly who come from European ancestry in the United States. And I'm interested in that because as a lifelong student of religion and really religion around the world, I've come to understand that nothing is... is, um, naturally anything for human beings, that is, that we tend to see the world through a particular cultural lens. 
So the question that cultural lens determines our perception of the world and therefore our experience in and behavior toward the world. Um, and I'm interested in what I find in the lived Hindu religious traditions, the devotional traditions that often develop a reverential relationship with what we would call the non-human world. Um, and would, would come to that relationship by interacting with the uh, entity, whether it's a, a stone or a river or a tree, in reverential or worshipful ways. And I guess I became intrigued both with the conception of the more-than-human world and how that conception is nurtured and realized through physical ritual practices. And I think that's that's what's different. I suppose that's also what makes my work different from a lot of the um, early work, particularly looking at environmentalism within Hinduism, that focus more on big philosophical ideas that um, have been expressed in scripture over the years. So rather than working from that large abstract philosophical view, I was more interested in what are people actually doing and what do they report um, in, in terms of the results of their worshipful interaction with non-human entities, as well as the conceptions that they bring to it primarily through the stories um, that are told within their culture. Can you give some examples of how this reverence for trees and stone plays out in worship? Paint the picture for listeners who may be unfamiliar with this. Well, it could be. Let me just take the two examples that we've been talking about, trees and, and mountains. I um, work a great deal uh, in the area of Brudge which is uh, an area about 100 miles south of Delhi that for centuries has been um, connected with the stories of, of uh, Krishna. And in the major text that is at the basis of the lived tradition of the religion of Braj, the Bhagavata Purana, there are really three major entities that define the world of nature, or the more than human world. And those are the Yamuna River, the Mount Govardhan, and the um, Vrindavan Forest, or the forest of, of Braj at large. So those are really the three entities that um, I've, I've focused on in, in three different books, uh, rivers and trees and mountains. Um, the last one that I published, Loving Stones, is, is focused on interaction with stones. So th this comes down to what, I'm, what I mean by worshipful interaction in the Hindu religious tradition, or puja, involves physical offerings. And this is a case of, of sacred trees also. They might be offerings of flowers. They might be offerings of fruits. They might be offerings of of songs and hymns or incense, or in the case of trees, trees love the offering of water for obvious reasons. Um, but these are gifts that are given to 
uh, a natural entity like a tree or a stone um, out of out of a gratitude for what comes from all that. And I became always interested in both the cases of trees and stones with the dressing up of a tree or a stone um, in a fashion that even includes the application of a face that is very much human-like um, and what is, is typically called in literature anthropomorphic techniques. And anthropomorphism um, so again, putting a face on a tree, um, and in the case of uh, tree worship, I focused a great deal on uh, tree worship in Benares. Uh, neem trees, for example, are identified as an embodied form of the goddess called Nimamai, or it could be a form of Durga or Shitalama, um, but a, a face of the goddess on that tree and the the faces placed there is a way to with additional ornamentation with a way then to um, honor the goddess in that form to beautify her to to worship her uh, through that loving act of dressing her up. But they also report that the face, the ornamentation, and particularly the eyes allow the deep intimate relationship to develop the the contact that is that we as human beings are hardwired from birth to connect with another being in an intimate way through the eyes whether that means um, a child looking into the eyes of the mother a mother looking in the eyes of a the eyes of her child as she's nursing that child or lovers looking into each other's eyes in that moment of loving contact um, this is; these are all ways then of enhancing the connection with some non-human entity. And worshippers will report that it's not necessary that a neem tree or a stone from Mount Govardhan is considered to be an embodied form of divinity without the ornamentation, but it's that ritual ornamentation that enhances the relationship, nurtures the relationship, and that connection um, is what many of the worshipers uh, seek. And it's also um, that deep connection. Social psychologists tell us that um, that deep connection, that feeling of connectivity is the key to well-being, and that well-being is, is the um, really root of all human health. But in addition to developing that sense of deep connection with, let's call it an ultimate reality through a particular embodied form of divinity, like a sacred tree or a stone from Mount Govardhan, it leads to a protective response. Um, when, we, when we feel love for a person, and these are persons uh, within the religious context that I'm speaking of here, when one loves a person, then one cares for that person. So that love has two functions here. Love, um, it, when we when we love a person, when we approach a person in a really harsh fashion, they tend to hide themselves to draw back from us. When we approach a person in a loving fashion, they come out and they reveal themselves to us. So 
there's that revelation of divinity in the world that comes through loving interaction, but it also leads to a caring relationship with that um, that embodied form of divinity or the natural entity and a desire to conserve it, to take care of it. I'm glad you went into the personalization part of it because I was anticipating another question I have. To early on in Loving Stones, well, early-ish on, page 63, when I was going through it, I wrote down, and I think I paraphrase this, but I think it's a statement that deserves some unpacking. Paraphrasing, you, you say something along the lines of stone worship is no more or less absurd than any other kind of religious practice. You didn't intend that as demeaning of religious practice nor the worship of stones. But I think that that's fairly provocative considering how many people in the West probably, or people in the West that don't have exposure to Hindu culture and Hindu practice or animist practices, you know, to someone dressing up a stone and using it for worship and connection. Can you expand on that, that statement? And forgive me if I over paraphrased it. And let me hear just again the demeaning. Well, you say if stone worship is no more or less absurd than any other kind of religious practice. Uh, So I could see someone saying that here's this author saying that religious practice is absurd. And I know you don't mean that. I don't mean that at all. (laughs) But I could see I I tend to look at things sometimes through a skeptical mind. Can you... To you, you're saying that this is just as valid as anything that anybody says is religion. That's correct? That's that's the point, that it's just as valid. And in a way, I don't want to make an ultimate judgment that this religion is right or this religion is right and then or and others are wrong. I'm I'm in the um my attention to the worship of Mount Govardhan. What I'm really trying to do is to, and again, this is addressed to an audience for whom this is very alien, is to make it less alien, to make it familiar, to make it understandable to a point where one could even appreciate that. And could one have access to, through some means, understanding the world in a larger sense um, than one comes to experiencing the world through the rather limited lens of a particular socialized perspective. And that's that's what I, that that comes the, the sentence that you pulled out must be in that kind of context where I'm talking about um, the um, sociology of knowledge, really, that we all we, we think we live as though the way we see the world is the way the world is. And yet, I think when we when we look at other cultures and spend time taking them seriously, we come to understand that everyone feels that way and that there are many different ways of being human. And I think that's what animates my own scholarship, my own research, my own study as a student of religion, is to, to understand difference. Um, because I think that's what expands our world. So there I'm really trying to say that that as a person thinks of their religious perspective as being the natural one, the right one, the ultimate one, others do also. And what I'm trying to do is to create a kind of a groundwork where one can accept 
the the proposition and the lived reality of another conception of the world in which we live. Thanks for that. Um, you mentioned this before in passing in this interview, but I think we, we should go back and go into it a little bit more for listeners. You make the just you use the phrase like an embodied divinity. And this is something you highlight is the distinction between the notion that mountains are have a sacredness. They're the abode of the divine is a phrase I tend to use. And that's something that you see in the West. People get inspiration and say, oh, this is a sacred place coming from somewhere. But with certain mountains in India, they are considered an actual embodied form of divinity. Can you parse that for people so they get get that distinction? We're talking about an actual embodied form of God that is great. That's greater than just the idea of mountains having a sacred quality to them. Well, I think this is the crux of the matter in many ways, and this is what makes something like worship of a stone so alien. Is that the United States is still predominantly whatever religion one identifies with or not, the society is still predominantly shaped by Protestant Christianity. And one of the major architects or leaders in the development of Protestant Christianity, John Calvin, writes very clearly in his work that any visible form of God is an idolatrous notion. So that there's a development within Protestant Christianity of what is called spiritual worship. And it's, it's, a, it's a mental, spiritualized form of worship for the most part. And, and again, fine, that's a, that's a religious conception that many relate to. But we're talking about something quite different here. And if we're going to take the proposition of reality seriously, on the part of those who are worshiping something like a stone from a sacred mountain, then we have to open to something else. And one way of putting this is that within a lot of the Abrahamic traditions, the language of symbolic representation makes a great deal of sense. So that if we were to walk into, um, let's say, a Presbyterian church, uh, a church which is um, greatly influenced by the theology of John Calvin. It's, it's, we won't really find much artwork. We're not going to find a great deal on the walls compared to, say, um, a Catholic church in Italy or Spain or Mexico. So it's a rather stark environment that it's likely we'll find, let's say, a wooden cross. That wooden cross, I think, is well explained through the language of symbolic representation where the wooden cross itself is the symbol or the signifier, to use uh, linguistic language for this, and that which it points to, Christ, what Christians have been arguing about you know, the meaning of for a couple thousand years, is, is the important part. But if one were to worship the wooden cross itself as Christ, that would be highly idolatrous, and that is a great sin within that theological framework. That makes sense for coming to understand the wooden cross in a Calvinistic church. That doesn't work when we look at something like uh, Hindu notions of embodied forms of, of divinity, 
So I think one has to, to realize that, again, to step outside of a certain uh, interpretive framework when we're looking at other religious traditions. But that's so when, when I look at a lot of 19th century, uh, what I call colonial scholarship, and my go to person for this is um, Edward B. Tyler, who was held the first position in cultural anthropology at Oxford University. Um, he explains what he calls idolatry for him too. Tyler was interested in laying out um, a a hierarchical scale so that he could judge where society belonged on a scale from civilized to primitive. And this was part of the justification for colonialism, because colonialism claimed that it was it, it was had the gift of civilization to offer the world. And therefore, a society societies that are identified as being primitive societies are those societies that can be justified as, as um, needing the leadership of colonial rulers. And so that his schema for placing a society on his hierarchical scale, and you can guess what the top of it is, top of it is basically the Society of Western Europe and Northern America. And I, he was able to place a society on that scale using his typology of religion. And what he says in his writing is that the greater the circle of sacrality for a particular society is an indication of their um, primitive nature. So that means that the, the civilized position involves a very narrow sense of sacrality. And therefore, um, something like an embodied form of divinity, a mountain, a tree, the, the natural entities uh, such as those would be uh, a sign for him that that this is a very primitive society. And he actually calls the uh, this is a form of idolatry. And in my book, particularly the um, Loving Stones book, where I'm where I'm looking at worship of a stone, which Tyler calls the kind of the most idolatrous act possible, where stone worshipers and stones are on the very bottom of the hierarchical heap of his his judgment. Um, he he calls that symbolic representation gone awry, so that that it's seen as there's a collapse of the symbol and the symbolized. And this is the great mistake of the primitive mind. But if we want to back away from that colonial judgment of other societies and look for just difference rather than wrongness, then it opens up another possibility. Symbolic representation is one. And I gave the example of I think it works fine to understand what's going on um, the wooden cross in a Presbyterian church. But when we look at Hindu understandings of the nature of the world, where everything is Brahman and Brahman is everything, or everything is God and God is everything, then we break out of that dualistic world that is at the very foundation of a lot of the um, Abrahamic religious developments. And again, I'm trying to say this in a way it's not right or wrong, 
But if if we want to understand in a deep sense other religious traditions, it means moving beyond um, that fixation on our own ways of seeing things and opening up to something else. So that within uh, a Hindu conception of a sacred tree or a sacred stone, that's not a symbol of the divine, but rather it is an embodied form of the divine. And that that statement does not eliminate the understanding that there is a great deal beyond that very particular form, but it doesn't deny the particularity of the infinite also. And I think for me, it's useful to begin to ask the question, uh, that pertains to the nature of the infinite. And that is, is the infinite somehow opposite from the finite? Mm. And I think there it gets us into kind of a dualistic world where it's the infinite and the finite. Or is it rather that the finite itself is non-different from the infinite? So that if the infinite can't embodied to encompass all of the finite then it's not really the infinite. And this gets us more into a kind of a Vedantic Hindu way of looking at things in the world. So that something that is a particular, particular tree, particular stone, um, doesn't mean that it is somehow non-different from, or that it is different from the, the, the infinite unmanifest dimension to ultimate reality, but it is the embodiment of the particular form itself is so important for the deep connection to take place that is being sought in a lot of the worshipful interaction with natural entities. What do you think about the idea that the Western scientific understanding of the nature of trees and animals, animal sentience, trees, there's research saying, you know, they communicate with each other in a form, um, often with the help of intermediaries from the world of fungus. We're seeing things a little bit more animated and lively than they once were. Do you think we will actually get there with seeing stones in a more alive way and is there a way through that science to bridge the two worldviews well um, i would say yes and and i'm fascinated with the new sciences whether it's uh you know the the ecological sciences biological sciences which are really talking about the interconnected nature of everything and scientists are um pointing out that it's very difficult to distinguish a boundary between life and non-life, um, that, that, that it tends to be much more of an organic understanding, a shape-shifting understanding of the world of matter, or whether it be through the new physics in, in some sense that we're seeing. Or, But I think the idea of interconnectedness is coming into the very heart of a lot of science research these days, so that that it's not difficult to find stories about animals communicating with each other. Animals can do this. Elephants can do this. I, I find it almost more surprising that we're surprised 
by what other life forms can do, because it shows to me that because it shows to me how our view of the non-human world is so limited and structured by a very particular historical process so that a lot of the new science does seem to be breaking down the barrier between the human and non-human. Animism is a term that people identify with more and more. Anthropocentrism was um, called a sin not that long ago, but with people like Jane Goodall and her study of uh, chimpanzees in particular, kind of an opening up of that world has has certainly begun and is happening more and more rapidly so that uh, ethologists, those who are studying animal behavior, are using some of them words like anthropomorphism. And anthropomorphism, a lot of people back off from, and in environmental circles, anthropomorphism is often uh, conflated with anthropocentrism. And it seems like in the past, anthropomorphism was demonized by scientists because they were very pro-anthropocentrism. That is, that they wanted to isolate humans from all other life forms, or their yeah, their understanding was such. Whereas we tend to be nervous with anthropomorphism because people think we're somehow denying the validity of others. I see anthropomorphism as a way of recognizing the affinity between humans and many other life forms. So um, maybe just to wrap up, in, in some sense, I think it's it's the reconsideration of anthropomorphism in some of the um, ecological sciences or animal behavior uh, studies that are going on. And uh, in the field of botany, understanding that trees are communicating uh, with each other. And um, I'm, I'm interested in the way that trees and humans can communicate with each other. And there's, there's, there's lots of examples, there's lots of stories of, of that kind of behavior uh, or possibility there also. That, that could be an entire other podcast. Um, thank you so much um, for speaking with me in the last half hour. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they, what's your preferred bookshop for purchasing them? They're Oxford University Press, I believe. Um, and where can people look up more about you? Well, I guess, yeah, I would start with um, the books that we've been referencing. Um, I had a, a, I mean, in some sense, I considered to be a quartet. I came to understand human interaction with the more than human the world first through a, a study of a pilgrimage that took place in the land of Brudge. And that's where I understood two things. One, that, that land is that all land is a storied land, that people tell stories that connect them to that land. But also in the case of Brudge, um, the pilgrimage area that I was studying, people identify the entire land itself as an embodied form of divinity. And I express all of that, the pilgrimage and um, the notions about that land in uh, a book called Journey Through the Twelve Forests. That one is an Oxford University Press book. Um, I also have done a study of sacred rivers, 
um, River of Love in an Age of Pollution was published by University of California Press a while ago. And then People Trees, um, Worship of Trees in Northern India, back to Oxford again. I think that was published in 2013. And my most recent book, maybe putting the cap on the whole project, uh, is Loving Stones, which was published in the year... Uh, 2020 by Oxford University Press. So I think any piece of that that someone might be interested in, um, those would be places to go for. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening.